Prologue Part One of I Will Repay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsey. Prologue Part One. Paris, 1783. Coward, coward, coward. The words rang out, clear, strident, passionate, in a crescendo of agonized humiliation. The boy, quivering with rage, had sprung to his feet, and, losing his balance, he fell forward clutching at the table, whilst with the convulsive movement of the lids, he tried in vain to suppress the tears of shame which were blinding him. Coward! He tried to shout the insult so that all might hear, but his parched throat refused him service, his trembling hands sought the scattered cards upon the table. He collected them together quickly, nervously, fingering them with feverish energy, then he hurled them at the man opposite, whilst with the final effort he still contrived to mutter, Coward! the older men tried to interpose but the younger ones only laughed quite prepared for the adventure which must inevitably ensue the only possible ending to a quarrel such as this conciliation or arbitration was out of the question Deroulade should have known better than to speak disrespectfully of Adèle de Moncherie, when the little Vicomte de Marny's infatuation for the notorious beauty had been the talk of paris and versailles these many months past Adèle was very lovely in a veritable tower of greed and egotism. The Marnies were rich and the little Vicomte very young, and just now the brightly plumaged hawk was busy plucking the latest pigeon, newly arrived from its ancestral coat. The boy was still in the initial stage of his infatuation. To him, Adèle was a paragon of all the virtues, and he would have done battle on her behalf against the entire aristocracy of France in a vain endeavour to justify his own exalted opinion of one of the most dissolute women of the epoch. He was a first-rate swordsman, too, and his friends had already learned that it was best to avoid all allusions to Adèle's beauty and weaknesses. But Deroulade was a noted blunderer. He was little versed in the manners and tones of that high society in which, somehow, he still seemed an intruder. But for his great wealth, no doubt, he would never have been admitted within the intimate circle of aristocratic France. His ancestry was somewhat doubtful, and his coat of arms unadorned with quarterings. But little was known of his family or the origin of his wealth. It was only known that his father had suddenly become the late king's dearest friend, and commonly surmised that Deroulade Gold had, on more than one occasion, filled the empty coffers of the first gentleman of France. Deroulade had not sought the present quarrel. He had merely blundered in that clumsy way of his, which was no doubt a part of the inheritance bequeathed to him by his bourgeois ancestry. He knew nothing of the little Vicomte's private affairs, still less of his relationship with Adèle, but he knew enough of the world and enough of Paris to be acquainted with the lady's reputation. He hated at all times to speak of women. He was not what in those days would be termed a lady's man, and was even somewhat unpopular with the sex. But in this instance the conversation had drifted in that direction, and when Adèle's name was mentioned, every one became silent save the little Vicomte, who waxed enthusiastic. A shrug of the shoulders on Deroulade's part had aroused the boy's ire, then a few casual words, and, without further warning, the insult had been hurled and the cards thrown in the older man's face. Deroulade did not move from his seat. He sat erect and placid, one knee crossed over the other, his serious, rather swarthy face perhaps a shade paler than usual. Otherwise it seemed as if the insult had never reached his ears, or the cards struck his cheek. He had perceived his blunder just twenty seconds too late. Now he was sorry for the boy and angered with himself, but it was too late to draw back. To avoid a conflict, he would at this moment have sacrificed half his fortune, but not one particle of his dignity. He knew and respected the old Duc de Marny, a feeble old man now, almost a dotard whose witherto spotless blasson, the young Vicomte, his son, was doing his best to besmirch. 
When the boy fell forward, blind and drunk with rage, Déroulède leant towards him automatically, quite kindly, and helped him to his feet. He would have asked the lad pardon for his own thoughtlessness, had that been possible, but the stilted code of so-called honour forbade so logical a proceeding. It would have done no good, and could but imperil his own reputation without averting the traditional sequel. The panelled walls of the celebrated gaming saloon had often witnessed scenes such as this. All those present acted by routine. The etiquette of dueling prescribed certain formalities, and these were strictly but rapidly adhered to. The young vicomte was quickly surrounded by a close circle of friends. His great name, his wealth, his father's influence, had opened for him every door in Versailles and Paris. But at this moment he might have had an army of seconds to support him in the coming conflict. Déroulade, for a while, was left alone near the card-table, where the unsnuffed candles began smouldering in their sockets. He had risen to his feet, somewhat bewildered at the rapid turn of events. His dark, restless eyes wandered for a moment around the room, as if in quick search for a friend. But where the vicomte was at home by right, Déroulade had only been admitted by reason of his wealth. His acquaintances and sycophants were many, but his friends were very few. For the first time this fact was brought home to him. Everyone in the room must have known and realized that he had not willfully sought this quarrel, that throughout he had borne himself as any gentleman would, yet now, when the issue was so close at hand, no one came forward to stand by him. "'For form's sake, monsieur, will you choose your seconds?' It was the young Marquis de Villefranche who spoke, a little haughtily, with a certain ironical condescension towards the rich parvenu, who was about to have the honour of crossing swords with one of the noblest gentlemen in France. "'I pray you, monsieur le marquis,' rejoined Déroulade coldly, to make the choice for me. You see, I have few friends in Paris. The Marquis bowed and gracefully flourished his lace handkerchief. He was accustomed to being appealed to in all matters pertaining to etiquette, to the toilet, to the latest cut in coats, and the procedure in duels. Good-natured, foppish, and idle, he felt quite happy and in his element thus to be made chief organizer of the tragic farce about to be enacted on the parquet floor of the gaming saloon. He looked about the room for a while, scrutinizing the faces of those around him. The gilded youth was crowding around de Marny. A few older men stood in a group at the further end of the room. To these the Marquis turned, and addressing one of them, an elderly man with a military bearing and a shabby brown coat, Mon Colonel, he said with another flourishing bow, I am deputed by Monsieur de Relade to provide him with seconds for his affair of honour. May I call upon you to— "'Certainly, certainly,' replied the colonel. "'I am not intimately acquainted with Monsieur de Relade, but since you stand sponsor, Monsieur le Marquis—' "'Oh,' rejoined the Marquis lightly, "'a mere matter of form, you know. Monsieur de Relade belongs to the entourage of Her Majesty. He is a man of honour. But I am not his sponsor. Marnie is my friend, and if you prefer not to—' "'Indeed, I am entirely at Monsieur de Relade's service,' said the colonel, who had thrown a quick, scrutinizing glance at the isolated figure near the card-table. "'If he will accept my services—' "'He will be very glad to accept, my dear Colonel,' whispered the Marquis, with an ironical twist of his aristocratic lips. "'He has no friends in our set, and if you and de Quetard will honour him, I think he should be grateful. Monsieur de Quetard, adjutant to Monsieur le Colonel, was ready to follow in the footsteps of his chief, and the two men, after the prescribed salutations to Monsieur le Marquis de Villefranche, went across to speak to Déroulet. "'If you will accept our services, monsieur,' began the colonel abruptly, "'mine and my adjutant's, monsieur de Guitar, we place ourselves entirely at your disposal.' "'I thank you, messieurs,' rejoined Déroulet. "'The whole thing is a farce, and that young man is a fool. But I have been in the wrong, and—' "'You would wish to apologize,' queried the colonel icily. The worthy soldier had heard something of Déroulet's reported bourgeois ancestry. This suggestion of an apology was no doubt in accordance with the customs of the middle classes, but the colonel literally gasped at the unworthiness of the proceeding. An apology? Bah! Disgusting! Cowardly! 
beneath the dignity of any gentleman, however wrong he might be. How could two soldiers of His Majesty's army identify themselves with such doings? But Desrolaids seemed unconscious of the enormity of his suggestion. "'If I could avoid a conflict,' he said, "'I would tell the Vicomte that I had no knowledge of his admiration for the lady we were discussing, and—' "'Are you so very much afraid of getting a sword-scratch, monsieur?' interrupted the colonel impatiently, while Monsieur de Catar elevated a pair of aristocratic eyebrows in bewilderment at such an extraordinary display of bourgeois cowardice. "'You mean, monsieur le colonel?' queried Desrolaids. "'that you must either fight the Vicomte de Marne to-night, or clear out of Paris to-morrow. "'Your position in our set would become untenable,' retorted the colonel, not unkindly, "'for in spite of Desrolaids' extraordinary attitude, there was nothing in his bearing or his appearance "'that suggested cowardice or fear. "'I bow to your superior knowledge of your friends, Monsieur le Colonel,' responded Desrolaids, "'as he silently drew his sword from his sheath. "'The centre of the saloon was quickly cleared.' The seconds measured the length of the swords, and then stood behind the antagonists, slightly in advance of the groups of spectators, who stood amassed all around the room. They represented the flower of what France had of the best and noblest in name, in lineage, in chivalry, in that year of grace, 1783. A storm-cloud which a few years hence was destined to break over their heads, sweeping them from their palaces to the prison and the guillotine, was only gathering very slowly in the dim horizon of squalid, starving Paris. For the next half-dozen years they would still dance and gamble, fight and flirt, surround a tottering throne, and hoodwink a weak monarch. The fate's avenging sword still rested in its sheath. The relentless, ceaseless wheel still bore them up in their whirl of pleasure. The downward movement had only just begun. The cry of the oppressed children of France had not yet been heard above the din of dance music and lovers' serenades. The young Duc de Chateaudon was there, he who, nine years later, went to the guillotine on that cold September morning, his hair dressed in the latest fashion, the finest Mechlin lace around his wrists, playing a final game of piquet with his younger brother, as the tumbril bore them along the, through the hooting, yelling crowd of the half-naked starvelings of Paris. There was the Vicomte de Maripoix, who, a few years later, standing on the platform of the guillotine, laid a bet with Monsieur de Mirange that his own blood would flow bluer than that of any other head cut off that day in France. Citizen Sampson heard the bet made, and when de Maripoix's head fell into the basket, the headsman lifted it up for Monsieur de Mirange to see. The latter laughed. Maripoix was always a braggart, he said lightly, as he laid his head upon the block. Who will take my bet that my blood turns out to be bluer than his? But of all these comedies, these tragico farces of later years, none who were present on that night when the Vicomte de Marny fought Paul de Roulade had as yet any presentiment. They watched the two men fighting with the same casual interest at first, which they would have bestowed on the dancing of a new movement in the minuet. De Marny came of a race that had wielded the sword of many centuries, but he was hot, excited, not a little addled with wine and rage. Desrolaids was lucky. He would come out of the affair with a light scratch. A good swordsman, too, that wealthy parvenu. It was interesting to watch his swordplay. Very quiet at first. No faint or parry. Scarcely a riposte. Only on guard. Always on guard. Very carefully. Steadily. Ready for his antagonist at every turn and in every circumstance. Gradually, the circle round the combatants narrowed. A few discreet explanations of admiration greeted Desrolaids' most successful parry. Desmarnes was getting more and more excited, the older man more and more sober and reserved. A thoughtless lunge placed the little vicomte at his opponent's mercy. The next instant he was disarmed, and the seconds were pressing forward to end the conflict. Honour was satisfied. The parvenu and the scion of the ancient race had crossed swords over the reputation of one of the most dissolute women in France. Desrolaids' moderation was a lesson to all the hot-headed young bloods who toyed with their lives, their honour, their reputation, as lightly as they did with their lace-edged handkerchiefs and gold snuff-boxes. Already Desrolaids had drawn back. 
with the gentle tact peculiar to the kindly people he avoided looking at his disarmed antagonist but something in the older man's attitude seemed to further nettle the overstimulated sensibility of the young vicomte this is no child's play monsieur he said excitedly i demand full satisfaction and are you not satisfied queried Desrilets. "'You have borne yourself bravely. "'You have fought in honour of your liege lady. "'I, on the other hand, you,' shouted the boy hoarsely, "'you shall publicly apologise to a noble and virtuous woman "'who you have outraged. "'Now, at once, on your knees.' "'You are mad, Vicomte,' rejoined Desrilets coldly. "'I am willing to ask your forgiveness for my blunder. "'An apology, in public, on your knees.' "'The boy had become more and more excited. "'He had suffered humiliation after humiliation. "'He was a mere lad.' spoilt adulated pampered from his boyhood the wine had got into his head the intoxication of rage and hatred blinded his saner judgment coward he shouted again and again his seconds tried to interpose but he waved them feverishly aside he would listen to no one he saw no one save the man who insulted adele and who was heaping further insults upon her by refusing the public acknowledgment of her virtues de marny hated Desrilets at this moment with the most deadly hatred the heart of man can conceive the older man's calm, his chivalry, his consideration only enhanced the boy's anger and shame. The hubbub had become general. Everyone seemed carried away with a strange fever of enmity, which was seething in the Vicomte's veins. Most of the young men crowded round de Marny, doing their best to pacify him. The Marquis de Villefranche declared that the matter was getting quite outside the rules. No one took much notice of de Relais. In the remote corners of the saloon a few elderly dandies were laying bets as to the ultimate issue of the quarrel. They relayed, however, was beginning to lose his temper. He had no friends in that room, and therefore there was no sympathetic observer there to note the gradual darkening of his eyes, like the gathering of a cloud heavy with the coming storm. "'I pray you, messieurs, let us cease the argument,' he said at last, in a loud, impatient voice. "'Monsieur le Vicomte de Marny desires a further lesson, and by God he shall have it.' "'On God, Monsieur le Vicomte!' The crowd quickly drew back. The seconds once more assumed the bearing and imperturbable expression which their important function demanded. The hubbub ceased as the swords began to clash. Everyone felt the farce was turning to tragedy. Yet it was obvious from the first that Desrilets merely meant once more to disarm his antagonist, to give him one more lesson, a little more severe perhaps than the last. He was such a brilliant swordsman, and de Marny was so excited that the advantage was with him from the very first. How it all happened, nobody afterwards could say. There is no doubt that the little vicomte's sword-play had become more and more wild, that he uncovered himself in the most reckless way, whilst lunging wildly at his opponent's breast, until, at last, in one of these mad, unguarded moments, he seemed literally to throw himself upon Desrilets' weapon. The latter tried with lightning-swift motion of the wrist to avoid the fatal issue, but it was too late, and without a sigh or a groan, scarce a tremor, the vicomte de Marny fell. The sword dropped out of his hand, and it was Desrilets himself who caught the boy in his arms. It had all occurred so quickly and suddenly that no one had realized it all until it was over, and the lad was lying prone on the ground, his elegant blue satin coat stained with red, and his antagonist bending over him. There was nothing more to be done. Etiquette demanded that Desrilets should withdraw. He was not allowed to do anything for the boy whom he had so unwillingly sent to his death. As before, no one took much notice of him. Silence, the awesome silence caused by the presence of the great master, fell upon all those around. Only in the far corner a shrill voice was heard to say, I hold you at five hundred louis, Marquis. The parvenu is a good swordsman. The groups parted as Desrilets walked out of the room, followed by the colonel and Monsieur de Quetard, who stood by him to the last. Both were old and proved soldiers. Both had chivalry and courage in them, with which to do tribute to the brave man whom they had seconded. At the door of the establishment they met the leech who had been summoned some little time ago to hold himself in readiness for any eventuality. The great eventuality had occurred. It was beyond the leech's learning. 
in the brilliantly lighted saloon above the only son of duc de marny was breathing his last while Desrolades, wrapping his mantle closely round him strode out into the dark street all alone end of prologue part one recording by annie kirkpatrick sherwood arkansas